let's let's open our Bibles here to Romans chapter two. I'm going to pray and then I'm going to read from verses 4 to 11, okay? Let's pray. Oh Lord God, this, this explanation of the gospel, these words of the inspired apostle, oh God, they are so crucial for us, Lord, to know and understand. Please help us, dear God, to grasp the, the meaning of, of what you're teaching May our hearts uh, hear and and receive. In Jesus' name, amen. Could I get someone to close the kitchen door for me, please? I want to be able to help you guys uh, concentrate and follow along. This first section here, I'm going to... Just, just remind you that hypocrisy is wicked, and that's kind of where we left off last week. Hypocrisy is wicked. So let me read from verses 4 to 11. Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? So verses 1 to 3 we're explaining to you and I about the inexcusable man, which we concluded last week is the inexcusable you. The central theme of, of these lines we have been reading so far is to, is to compel every man and woman that they are in desperate need of forgiveness because of their wrong thinking toward God, their wrong acting toward God, their godless and unrighteous behavior. The book of Romans is explaining why men and women need a savior. Chapter 2 began speaking to the man and the woman who felt themselves to be in a different audience. As in, when we read and studied chapter 1, there are many people who will read through that and, and, and not see themselves being spoken to and, and pointed out there. And so those first three verses speaks to that person who is a hypocrite. And then verse 4 that we just read, do you despise or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance and long-suffering? And I'm going to address kind of the, this question here in a moment. Do you despise the riches, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each one according to his deeds. 
eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality. But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath, tribulation, and anguish on every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek, but glory, honor, and peace to everyone who works what is good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for there is no partiality with God. We're primarily only going to be considering two main subjects in this passage today. The the first subject we're going to spend some time contemplating, you're going to see mentioned in verse 5, where this inexcusable one is uh, treasuring up wrath. We want to understand what what is meant by this person who is treasuring up wrath. And then we want to also consider the question which is raised in these lines is, is the idea of salvation by works. Can men um, make themselves um, acceptable and approved to God by their deeds? Which is actually the explicit statement in the remaining lines of what we have read this morning. These lines say that there are certain expectations for the wicked and certain expectations for the good, eternal life for one, wrath for the other, which certainly implies that men are saved by their works. And we want to see what Paul meant by this. So verse 4 exposes a fallacy that is employed by the inexcusable that we were introduced to in 1 to 3. A fallacy is an argument that is reasonable on its face, but it's a lie. A fallacy is a trick argument. A fallacy is something that sometimes you use in response in an argument, but it's actually very illogical and irrational, so they're called fallacies. When you when you argue, uh, let's say, your, your friend says that, uh, that, that they make some assertion of a fact and you disagree with them. And then they say, well, I know it's true because I heard Donald Trump say it. And then you go, oh, everything he says is a lie. What an idiot that you would say that. Well, that's a fallacy. It's a fallacy. Uh, and, and it's emotional too, isn't it? And, and, and it's true. I, I know at least some of the things that ex-President Trump said are lies, but he said a lot of true things too. It's just not a basis by which you would carry on that argument, is it? But we use fallacies. We use emotional fallacies. We use personality-smearing fallacies. We use tricky fallacies. Verse 4 exposed a fallacy that is employed by the inexcusable. What that means is, is the inexcusable has a reason that none of this stuff applies to him so far. 
The inexcusable has heard the charges that, that kind of began in verse 18 of chapter 1 all the way through to now, and they, they just kind of find themselves excused. Paul asks the question, Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering, not knowing the goodness of God leads you to repentance? And so what we see is that those who are in the process of just living out their lives often view this unchanging time or in a way this favorable time. They, they view how things have been going as God's approval. So the, the man who has excused himself from the charges in you know 118 to where we stopped, he says, look, I've been doing what I've been doing. I do what I do. God hasn't put a stop to it. Time goes on the way it goes on. Everything's good. God is for me. Why do you expect me to believe that anything bad is going to happen? Nothing bad happens. People have been doing this for generations. I'm the third crook in the family in the last three generations. We always do this. So men reason like this. But this is a fallacy, and Paul is exposing this fallacy. He's saying, look, the, the fact that things are like this are you not understanding what this season of peace is for. You don't know why. You don't even understand why you haven't been killed yet, do you? That's in essence Paul's question back to them. These men, they presume their safety. And the day of judgment to them is simply a myth. It's a religious, theoretical day of judgment. They're not afraid of it. They think, well, when's the last time there was a day of judgment? And as a matter of fact, everybody who ignores a day of judgment, everybody who does does whatever they want to do, they get what they want. They enjoy their life. They have a good time. That's the argument. That's the fallacy of this person. But as Paul tells us, he says, he asks a question which exposes the fallacy. The scripture says that this period of time is God's goodness and patience. Isn't that what the scripture says? You living under this spell, under this period of time that is relatively peaceful, you living in a time like this is God's goodness and it's God's patience and it is giving time for you to repent. It's not an indication of God's favor. So Paul's reinterpreting the sign, isn't he? The sign is there. There is some evidence there. Paul's saying you, you don't know what it means. This time is meant to give you an opportunity to live and not die at the last day. So the man who is enjoying this time for himself, the man who is experiencing this period of life without the true or without the proper response to God and without proper repentance toward God is said to be, and you see what, what he is at the end of verse 5. If you look at the end of verse 5, here's, here's Paul's charge to him. In accordance with your hardness and impenitent heart. Now that's why he doesn't respond properly to the evidence. He has a hard heart and he has an impenitent heart. And in, in accordance with this, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation. So the argument in Romans now what it's doing is it's exposing the error of men 
who have their bent morality, their broken morality, that has been exposed in these lines above. It's, it's speaking to these men who are along that track, and they're told that this state of reprobate heart, hardness, deadness, they're told that this condition of their heart has hardened them and has deadened them to the judgment that is in store. He's saying you terribly misread what is happening in no small part because you have a hard heart. You have an impenitent heart. And so the day of judgment and wrath comes. And so interestingly, you'll also notice that the argument from this point here does not so much focus on the the symptoms of depravity. In other words, we've read about so many. I think I told you there were about 22 listed in the last two verses of chapter 1. There are 22 things listed that were all symptoms and evidences of depravity and, and of being given over to a reprobate mind. We're not looking at the, these symptoms anymore. But instead, now Paul warns about how the defect, about how this brokenness ends for men. What's the end result of this is really how he focuses now. Now, I found it very, very interesting, and and, and I, I believe this will help you comprehend what Paul is, is driving at here. We're going to speak about riches and treasure. We're going to look at these ideas of riches and treasure that Paul raises here. There's a play on words here in verses 4 and 5 that you'll discover. Paul says, Do you despise the riches of his goodness? He's speaking about God's goodness, and and we will call this time. In, In a sense, men, you men, I, the men of the world, are favored with this time. The opposite of it would be immediate judgment and death, right? Men are men are favored with this time. Paul calls it the riches of his goodness. The riches of his goodness and forbearance and long-suffering. I want you to realize that these three things he mentioned here, they're incalculably valuable. What, what, what is it? Forbearance. What does it mean that God has forbearance? It means he's holding back. It means he's being patient. He's not doing what he could rightly do. He's exercising forbearance. He's exercising kindness. Now, there are two qualities of a heart that make a dreadful use of these riches. That is, if a heart possesses these certain characteristics, that heart will misuse this richness. If you're handed this richness, if it's given to you in a bag of of gold coins, if you will, if the richness is handed to you, what's being explained to us is that the hard and impenitent heart take this richness from God and they abuse it. They don't put it to a good use. It says that to the degree that one remains hard and impenitent, he's treasuring up wrath. You see the relationship between the word riches and treasuring up? God has riches for all men. What is the riches? 
What is the riches? It's goodness. It's forbearance. It's patience. So men receive this richness. And then Paul says, they treasure up. What is treasuring up? It's taking your riches and heaping them up. It's it's taking your riches and, and making the most of your riches. It's making yourself rich with your riches. Let me explain a little bit more. But this man is treasuring up wrath. The King James says, against the day of wrath. The New King James here doesn't use the word against. It says, in the day of wrath. And I think there's an interesting uh, thought for us to consider if we use the word against the day of wrath, but it's against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous revelation of God. The rebellious, he stores up and he invests against the day of wrath. What would that mean? What is Paul really getting at? What are you and I supposed to picture or understand? What does it mean that you are against the day of wrath? What would it mean for you to be opposed to the day of wrath. I think that's part of what's in mind here. Well, they heap up evidence of their disdain for God's right judgment that comes. They heap up all of the result of their unbelief of it. The one who believes that the day of wrath comes orders his life in such a way that when it comes, he's in the safest possible position. But the one who is heaping up his treasure against it, opposed to it, is in a sense saying, I don't even care about it. I'll I'll do whatever I want and everything I want against it. Bring it on. I'm going to do what I want anyways. This seems to be the attitude of the person that God's word is speaking to here. So the spirit reveals here that deeds of treasuring, their works of treasuring, will result in something. They're treasuring up. Let me use this word, richening up. See, God has riches. If you're richening, treasuring, according to the heart and impenitent heart, what does your treasure get you? What is the end result of your treasure? This is what Paul is warning about here. So the Spirit reveals that the deeds of treasuring result in, look at verse 5, results in wrath. Verses 8 and 9 tells you more results of the treasuring of the hard and impenitent. What does verses 8 and 9 say they will get out of their investment? Indignation, tribulation, anguish. Those who are treasuring up according to hard and penitent heart will see this as the return on their investment. It also speaks about those who treasure up according to what he calls patient continuance. You see that? Patient continuance. Patient continuance results in verse 7, eternal life. And in verse 10, it results in glory, honor, and peace. So there is the one who is working and living in patient continuance. You see that in verse 7. Eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality. So the one who is 
practicing and exercising goodness or patient continuance, they receive eternal life, glory and honor and peace. And so there's a principle at stake here. There's a principle being taught to you here that is certainly in other areas of the New Testament. There's a treasure principle. There's a treasure principle. Men are drawn to treasure. The things that you treasure, the things that you love, you are drawn to. And you work for. You're compelled to act on the things that you love and that you treasure. Do you remember the story of the pearl in Matthew 13? Do you remember that? Turn to Matthew 13. The Lord Jesus actually told a couple very, very short stories here in Matthew 13 to make sure you remember this treasure principle. Paul's alluding to the very same thing. I'm going to read you the one almost at the end. There's several here that are so, so fascinating. The one about the pearl. Do you guys remember the one about the pearl? None of you guys have ever bought and sold pearls before. But if, if I had a pearl that filled the palm of my hand, a black pearl that was rich in luminescence and perfectly round, what do you think it would be worth? $500,000? Maybe a million? A, a, a large, large, perfect pearl. It's incredibly valuable. You know why? They're rare. You, you can't go down to San Francisco and buy something like that. You can buy the little bitty ones that are a quarter of an inch around. But when you find something that is truly rare and valuable like that, why is it worth so much? Because there might only be one. So what is it worth for the one who collects that thing? What is it worth? It's, it's really conceivably worth whatever it costs. Because there's only one. Now, Matthew 13, 44 says, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found in the field and hid. And for joy over it, he goes and he sells all that he has and he buys in a field. What's, what's the treasure principle here? When a man finds something that is truly valuable to him, he gives... Whatever it takes to have it. And it's not considered a loss. You know, some of you have been here in the past to hear me speaking about this man who bought the pearl or the man who bought the field. You know, when you find an amazing deal on a pearl or a gem or even a piece of land, let's say I found an amazing piece of land for a million dollars. And I went and borrowed money from my dad. And I went and borrowed money from Greg. And I went and borrowed money from Wes. And, and I found a million dollars and I bought that land. I don't walk away from the deal going, oh man, I had to borrow a million dollars to buy that land. Well, I am thrilled. I'm so happy that I was able to get this thing for only a million dollars. This is the treasure principle. This is what is being shown you in Romans chapter 2. What is the 
hard-hearted and impenitent man treasuring up? What is he treasuring up? This is what Paul is helping you to realize. He has a hard and impenitent heart and he's treasuring up wrath. Why? Because he will not hear the thing that is pleasing to God. He will not hear the accusation of sin and wrongdoing. He won't repent. And so he does what he wants instead. He's treasuring up for himself wrath. So here in the gospel revelation of Romans chapter 2, men are given a rich window of time to find God, to make peace with God, repent toward God, have eternal life. But most men will spend this opportunity, most women will spend this opportunity treasuring up wrath. They're heaping up everything that is opposed to God and His day of judgment instead. Well, this passage goes on to say that God will render to every man according to his deeds. It's a reminder here that these men will be exposed. They will be exposed as wrongdoers. So if we look at verse 6 again, um, I'm going to have to back up just a tiny bit. God, who will render to each one according to his deeds, eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality. But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath, tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory, honor, peace to everyone who works what is good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for there is no impartiality with God. So 6 through 11 affirms that the things men do result in eternal life, Right? It affirms things they do will result in eternal life or will result in indignation, wrath, and tribulation. Whether Jew or Greek, all men will be judged by their deeds. When Paul says, you know, your Bible probably marks that little passage in your Bible with italics, will render to each one according to his deeds. There's at least four Old Testament references that say something along those lines. Look at the, uh, make a note to yourself of Job 34.11. But listen to what Job 34.11 says. It says, for he repays man according to his work. God repays man according to his work and makes man to find a reward according to his way. In other words, if you take the bad way, you'll get a reward for the bad way. If you take the good way, you'll get a reward for the good way. The wages of sin is death. The free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus the Lord. So we see this principle being explained to us or being told to us that God will render according to his deeds. The first group of people who are being shown to us here are in verse 5. They're hard and impenitent. Verse 8, they're self-seeking. They're disobedient to the truth. 
They obey in righteousness. This is the first group. The second group is in verse 7. Those who by patient continuance in doing good, seeking for glory, honor, and immortality. Two groups. Their own characterizations. God renders to the self-seeking wrath in the day of wrath. Indignation. God renders to the patiently continuing eternal life. God renders. God pays. God gives according to their deeds. And so what we have to realize here is that after having been shown Romans 1 and then up to this point in Romans chapter 2, after having described in these sections of Romans, what I believe is a universal decline and failure of mankind, a universal being given over to unrighteous deeds and ungodliness, Paul changes the subject to the consequence of these realities, that is, eternal life or wrath. And he says the patient can expect rewards of eternal life. The self-seeking are actually treasuring up wrath and must expect wrath and anguish. And this is why we want to ask the question here. Romans addresses it later on in Romans much more clearly. But this is why we want to ask the question here. Does this teach salvation by works? Does this teach men that men are made righteous by their deeds? Because it certainly seems to be implied here. And I think maybe we would be rightly confused at this point because we have studied the gospel over these years and we know that it is by grace you have been saved through faith and this not of yourselves. It's a free gift of God. Gospel salvation comes by faith and not by works. And yet, very clearly, verses 7 and 8 promise life for doing good and wrath for self-seeking. So how are we supposed to understand this? How are we supposed to process this in our minds? Well, verse 5 says that the hard and impenitent are self-seeking and do not obey the truth. Verse 7 says those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality. So one of the things I think we can see here, and, and, and something I believe is contrasted here, is when men expect to get what they want. I think if you ask that question, when do men expect to get what they want, it helps us to understand the difference between these two groups of people. So Paul is describing lives in this section, lives that spring from what they believe. What we see being described here is what is it that men do because of what they believe. Verse 7 admires or, or, or lifts up the men who act with patient continuance, for example. They do good and they seek glory and honor and eternal life. So doing this with patient continuance means what? What does it mean to be a person of patient continuance? 
When do you practice patience? When do you practice patience? When you're on the brink of not having it, right? That's when patience kind of comes to be the, 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 the main thing. You're losing your patience. And, and you will, in some ways, hopefully decide to act with patience. But you practice patience, hopefully, when you're tempted to be short. But patient continuance means that you believe something is right, even if some immediate pressure on you or in you offers a more favorable result. Sometimes you feel pressed to be impatient, and let's just say it was an outburst of anger, and you want to yell at your wife or your husband or your kid. You're just going to lose your patience, and it makes you feel good. It makes you happy. It makes you relieved until one second later, and then you feel like a loser. But you lose your patience because you submit to something that is taking you over. But these, they patiently continue. They patiently continue, anticipating glory. What does it mean to anticipate it? It means it's in the future somewhere, right? Anticipating honor means it's in the future. It's not now. In patient continuance, this group who is told to expect eternal life is looking for something that's in the future. It's not something they presently own or have, right? This is a future hope. This is obviously based on something they believe. Those in verse 8, on the other hand, are self-seeking. They are not seeking approval from him that they will meet in the future. The self-seeking are not seeking approval from him that they will meet in the future. They don't respect truth. It says they disobey the truth. The reason they don't respect truth is because nobody can do anything about it right now. They're getting what they want now. Sometimes we call them pragmatists. A pragmatist is someone who does what works. A pragmatist is someone who just is looking for the shortest and most profitable way to get the job done. So the thrust here, the thrust of the passage to kind of put the question in, into a context that I believe helps us understand the question correctly. The thrust in the whole passage is in the certainty of the judgment for the hard-hearted. That's the main theme the passage is looking at, the certainty of judgment for the hard-hearted. They see themselves above the inexcusable. They see themselves as being impervious to the charge that is coming to the inexcusable ones. But on the other hand, they should have expected to be judged along with the inexcusable. The principled, patient person does not describe them. In other words, the one who by patient continuance seeks for glory and honor and immortality that doesn't describe them. This person isn't wired like that. They're not thinking like that. This passage doesn't teach how they can be saved. 
but it teaches the time you have now will shortly come to an end. It teaches the time to be considering is now before you face God's wrath. So let's look at just two more lines, verses 11 and 12. Righteousness and not birthright is what closes this section. There is no partiality with God, for as many as have sinned without law will also perish without law, and as many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. So as we see, the teaching is about God's consistent judgment. In other words, God's judgment isn't going to be giving deference to to Jew or non-Jew. With or without the law, men will perish and be judged according to what they do with the laws of their own conscience or the law given by God. The, the, The letter here will go into more detail. Your conscience is a law unto itself. You as a Gentile have a a simple law written on your heart. It's the reason why all of the people of the world know it's wrong to murder. It's wrong to steal. It's wrong to lie. These are laws written on the heart of all men, right? So the ones who do not have the law of Moses will be judged by this law that's written on their conscience. Those who have the law of Moses will be judged by the law of Moses. The time now experienced, the time now lived, will come to an end. And God will again judge the world as he did a long time ago. And men forget this. I thought of Second Peter chapter 3 when I was thinking about the treasure of time that is being given to men. This time is meant to lead men to repentance. But men won't believe that there is a need of repentance. They won't believe there is an hour of judgment coming upon men. Listen to how Peter reminded the Christians. Second Peter 3, 2 says, that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord. Knowing this first, scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts. So those are some people, just like the ones we're reading about here in Romans 2. And they will be saying, where is the promise of his coming? Where is this Lord who is going to judge and end the age. Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. You see how there's a people here who sees the passing of time unchanging to be the, the reason they don't fear. Everything is now as it's always been. There's no judgment coming. All things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. And Peter goes on, For this they willfully forget, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of water. You know what that means? There didn't used to be a world. Why is there a world? And how long did it take to come into being? It came in an instant. By the word of God. Men seem to forget this, that once upon a time the creation came from nothing by the word of God. And this is one reason why evolution is such a wicked lie. It's taught the world there is no such thing as divine creation. 
It's taught men to not believe there is any such thing as a creator. They willfully forget that by the word of God the heavens were of old and earth standing out of water and in the water, by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But, beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. So Peter speaks about the day of the Lord that will come. He speaks about the day of the Lord that is coming. The wrath of the Lord that comes against the ungodly and the unrighteous and Therefore, all men need to repent. We do very soon in the book of Romans return to the charge in chapter 3 that all of sin falls short of the glory of God. And then we are taught the way of salvation by faith. The way of putting your trust and your hope in Christ. The way of hearing God's charge against you, you are a sinner who needs a Savior. You are a sinner who needs to be forgiven of your sin. Romans goes on to tell us that you are all, you are these people in Romans 1 and 2. You are the inexcusable. And God's wrath comes. Don't look at this time of peace as as being an excuse that God's judgment doesn't come. Don't think like that. Don't think like those men. Remember that God will reward those who by patient continuance will receive eternal life. Patient continuance in knowing who is the Savior. Who is God? Do you live in a way you desire to please Him and walk with Him? This person lives and walks in patient continuance. So today we're going to have communion and uh, Randy and I will hand out the, the bread and the, and the cup here I want to read you 1 Corinthians 11 23 to 28 and if you would go ahead and uh, come up Randy and start helping me pass that stuff out that would be great You and I are people who must have a Savior in order to have hope of eternal life. Otherwise, we will be condemned in our sins. And so today we celebrate the death of the Lord Jesus who died for sinners. 1 Corinthians 11.23 says, I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. But the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. Let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink the cup. 
The cup of communion, the bread of communion is for Christians. It's for men and women who have agreed with God that your sin and your sins are worthy of death. And the Lord Jesus took the death of sinners. We remember the blood spilled for redemption. We we remember the broken body of the Lord. And so the way you do this in a worthy manner is you do this as a believer. You do this in proper remembrance of the Savior who gave His life so that you might live. So we'll finish uh, passing out the, the bread and the, and the cup and then you can take some time in prayer confessing your sin to the Lord and giving your thanks to the Lord.